I made you a spreadsheet. I have not looked at the spreadsheet. So someone on Twitter, and we'll link to the thread in the show notes, is doing a Pratchett World Cup with a bunch of polls. All of Terry Pratchett's works, not just the Discworld. Most of them are seriously, like, uh, obvious winners. Yeah, like Diggers versus Witches Abroad, uh, which is Abroad is at 94%. I really want to do the uh, Truckers, Diggers and Wings at some point, though. We should do a bonus month. Yeah, the Bromeliad trilogy is... Yeah. Um, the I, I did one. pick Witches Abroad. Yeah, no, me too. The closest one is Jingo versus Thief of Time. Mm, yeah, I went Jingo. I'm guessing. Yeah, you I did went as Jingo. Well. Yeah, <laughs> Jingo is one of my favourite watch books. Uh, the Long Earth is n- not doing well in any of them. No, which... I I voted Long Earth over more. Um, oh really? Yeah, I fucking love the Long Earth, and I like Mort, but I, I think it's Long possible Earth. Mort is very fresh in my mind because it's not that long since we talked about Mort and. I haven't read the Long Earth series for a really long time. That's another one we should do bonus episodes on at some point. Yeah. We'll get so many complaints, though. People really hate the Long Earth for some reason. Like, if you go on any of the Pratchett threads talking about it, everyone's a little bitch fest. Well, I think it's because it's co-written. There's as much Stephen Baxter there as there is uh, Terry Pratchett, and people don't like that because it means they're not Terry Pratchett books. Yeah. But <laughs> I enjoy that. I think I do I do think, think they're good books. I mean, I... I think they dropped off a bit the last couple, mm. but I've only read those last two once, whereas the first two I've definitely read more than once. Yeah, the the first one sticks very heavily in my brain. I couldn't really summarise the plots of all the others. But I found it interesting looking at the Pratchett World Cup. One of our uh, Twitter followers, hi Andy, was like, well, Nightwatch is the best. It's one of the best works that fiction ever created. So, you know, why bother with the poll? And while I agree, Nightwatch is definitely one of the absolute best it's in my top five which mm. my top five are in no particular order because i refuse to choose and you can't make me yeah but so. what i thought was interesting bearing in mind this is all of pratchett stuff and not just Discworld. Mm. Nightwatch as a work of fiction is definitely one of the greatest works of fiction ever written 100 yeah. percent. but within the context of the Discworld, it's arguably not the best one because yes. there are other Discworld books that are equally as good, but they're only that good because you have the full context of the Discworld behind them. Mm. I would be very surprised if the final didn't come down to Nightwatch versus Nation. Um, I don't know about Nation. I don't know about Nation. Um, similarly, on Facebook groups, I've seen well, more mixed reactions than from The Long Earth, which was pretty solidly negative. But there's quite a lot of people who just aren't into anything that's not Discworld. Yeah, yeah. Which is a shame because his non-Discworld books are amazing. They are. I like. Uh, I liked Dodger. I didn't like it nearly as much as Nation or The Long Earth. I don't um, remember enjoying Dodger particularly, but again, I've only read it once, and I think that might be one that's really worth a reread. Which again, yes, I'd say it is definitely. I've read it a couple of times, and I did. I enjoy it very much. It's a good book, but it's not like a seared into my brain forever book like some yeah nation nation on the other hand is yeah. very much like a, oh god okay that lives here now yeah yeah oh that's a lot of anger goodness me that is a rage <laughs> that is a rage filled but but yeah but at some point we'll do like a nation month mm. and a dodger month and this will all have something to do with the uh, shifting everything around so that we can hit our father in December. <laughs> <laughs> i'd love to do that but then realise I've overshot and somehow accidentally push Hogfather to January. Yeah. <laughs> Which is definitely something I do because I'm very bad at remembering how time works. 
you'll just make me release two episodes a week for that month yeah well yeah <laughs> I'm not I want to say I'm sorry I mean we definitely won't hit hogfather this Christmas I haven't actually checked where we're at Eric is August moving pictures September Reaper Man October yes. which is abroad <laughs> I want to get to Reaper Man so badly <laughs> I know a bit of me was like oh maybe like we should do a month on something other than uh the Discworld books yeah. after moving pictures because moving pictures is 10 mm-hmm. but a I really want to get to Reaper Man yeah, and b yeah. it's October which is Halloween month oh yeah 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 and then which is abroad resurrect that picture of me in uh as dressed as Bill Dorr. Yeah. <laughs> I will not be resurrecting the pictures of me as most von Lipwig. Top tip, kids: don't buy cheap blue contacts off the internet. Yeah, you were crying that night. Oh, I was crying. I had blue eyes anyway. Is the thing like that was a highly <laughs> unnecessary purchase. But <laughs> so, in theory, we're going to do small gods at Christmas. Yeah, and that's nice. Yeah, yeah. What's the real meaning of Christmas if not to highlight the absurdity of theological belief? But unless we uh, have lots of breaks from Discord next year, I suggest that maybe after Reaper Man we do a month on something else. Okay. Like cool, cool. maybe we could do uh, The Dark Side of the Sun or Strata. Yeah, because I, I haven't read those. I've got them, but I haven't read them yet. Yeah. I got them not be long fun. before we started this, and I just haven't felt like shoehorning another Pratchett book into my Pratchett schedule, which is now a thing. <laughs> yeah. So this was a weird thing. So I realised since we started the podcast, because my method for episode planning is to go through the book and fill it with uh, serial killer levels of post-it notes and uh, then to go through and use those post-it notes. Yeah, all right. Minimalist. I took out all the ones I didn't put in the plan because I kept Uh, getting confused trying to turn to the right ones. I thought about doing that, but I love the post-it filled book. Oh, yeah. I mean, you need to keep doing it like that now. This is our record of uh, how the podcast is made. This is, it'll be in a museum one day. <laughs> Definitely in a museum. Once we're rich enough to buy our own museum, yes. <laughs> in our lighthouse. I like how somehow that's a more realistic prospect to me than one of our artifacts ending up in a museum. But. <laughs> we'll be very wealthy eventually. Um, yeah, so normally that's how I do it. And I realised I was kind of missing out on the experience of just reading the book. Mm. so this time I read the whole book first and then went through and did all the post-its and then went back through to plan the episode so it's had three reads let's make a podcast before we start the earthworm smiles at April rain ah yes but revolving turnips sound the gong verily and the daughter of the night is wearing big knickers a spirit suppressed shall never um I forgot can we just start the podcast don't know about that how do I know who you are? Oh, the red otter flies at midnight. Hello and welcome to The Two Shall Make Ye Fret, a podcast in which we're reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen-Young. And I'm Francine Carroll. And today we're talking about Guards, Guards! Guards, Guards! The eighth Discworld novel. Are we going to pronounce the exclamation point every time? I'm going to commit to that and then forget about two-thirds of the way through the episode. Okay, cool, cool. That's optimistic. I like that. Yeah. Well, it was when we were doing pyramids, I was going to call you bastard. You bastard every time. And that <laughs> very quickly. I don't think I even got through the summary. Uh, so, yeah, this is a spoiler light podcast. Obviously, spoilers for the book we're on. Guards, guards. 
uh, but we will try and avoid discussing any major future events in the Discworld series, and we are avoiding any and all discussion of The Shepherd's Crown, the final Discworld novel, until we get there, so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Ride on the back of a dragon, if you like. I, I wouldn't like. They're quite scary and big. Gallop across the desert on a camel mathematician. That's However better. you like, just join us on this journey. Journey. I'm leaning into it now. 26 episodes in. God, it's 26 episodes. We should have... What, 26 plus bonuses. We should have done something for our 25th. Yeah, I thought that as I was naming the file, but never mind. Bit late now. If anyone wants to send us, you know, balloons and cake and congratulatory what's it's, then uh, feel free to. Congratulatory what's it. Do we have anything to follow up? Uh, Follow up, follow up. I didn't look at the documents, so let's say no. Cool. I don't remember having homework. If we did have homework, I didn't do it. I'm not going to lie, one of our bits of homework from the first episode was to read Gormenghast, and I don't know about you, but I've still not read Gormenghast. Yeah. Well, I need, well, I fell at the first hurdle, because I went to Waterstones, and the only version of it they had was the entire trilogy in one book, which, A, I do not want to read a book that injures my wrists, and B, I didn't want to commit to a 20 quid book when i hadn't even read a chapter of the bloody thing yeah that's fair god remember going to bookshops yes vividly in my dream i know know they're open again now but i'm still not doing non-essential shopping yeah yeah it seems well the whole thing is like you're not meant to touch the books anymore like they have to put the books in quarantine if you touch them and like i don't want to be I don't want to turn book shopping into a stressful thing. I'd rather just wait until this damn pandemic is over. This damn pandemic. Francine, would you like to introduce us to Guards, Guards? Guards, Guards was published in 1989. It's the first of the Ankh-Morpork City Watch arc. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're not talking about future books, but like also this is the beginning of a story arc and we're very hyped to be here. Yeah, this is one of the like core entry points if you're going to recommend Discworld someone. Um, If they're not super into wizards or feminism, in which case, why are we talking to them? But yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) We know that isn't into wizards and feminism. Um, But yeah, so it introduces some of the core characters uh, of the Discworld because of that. So you've got Sam Vimes, got Simul Rankin, Colon, Nobs, Carrot, um, and like Vetnari. Have we seen him before, possibly? We have. He was a lizard for most of sorcery. That's right, yes. yes. Uh, but we haven't, re- we haven't hung out with him. Yeah. So, yeah, not only is he kind of introduced here, he is, his whole philosophy is fleshed out. And like, yeah. because of that, when it was published, it was recognised as a bit of a turning point for the Discworld, like into serious topics, especially yeah. for that little monologue at the end. Oh my god, yes. Yeah, I read the whole two pages out aloud to Jack last night. <laughs> I'd say this is one of the... We talked about like where he shifts away from straight-up fantasy parody to parodying other things, like with uh-huh. Weird Sisters. He was parodying fairy tales, but also Shakespeare. And yeah. But I think this is the first one where it's a big, like... It's the hero's journey parody, but it's as much about the city existing and it moves away from yeah. fantasy even more. Yeah, it's commentary as well as parody, isn't it? Yeah. Um, although the the references are very heavy handed uh, to the point that even I recognise some cop, cop movie references and I'm not very into that genre. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, I'm going to say now, like, I can't be bothered to mention most of the <laughs> movie references throughout this. This That's possibly a job for another podcast. I pointed out a couple. They did make me chuckle a couple of them, like, just because he puts them in in a funny way. But, like, that's... yeah, the way they're put in. But we'll get to those. We yeah. will. But, yeah, I didn't realize this is 1989. This is around the time he was writing Good Omens as well, or yes. very close to, which yeah. is interesting because there's lots of aggressively interrogating the human condition. Yes. Which is how one enjoys spending a Tuesday. Personally, yes, very yes. much. Um, yeah. Never on a Wednesday. Um, <laughs> so do you want to summarise the first section? Where, where do we go up to? Page 106, right? We've split it into the standard three sections. There are handy asterisks that split the book into three sections, and we've followed them. Did you, did you see the... Um, little author bio in the start of this one um, oh yeah insert for a quiet life he got a job as a press officer with the central electricity generating board just after three mile island which shows his unerring sense of timing <laughs> oh, they alter slightly from book to book <laughs> they do they vary also well they alter from publication to publication mm. that would make sense too which uh the first time i saw a Pratchett book where the author bio had the past tense like broke me yeah fuck this reality to be honest um absolutely I we went have down the... the wrong trouser <laughs> in the wrong trouser leg of time right I'm summarizing aren't I uh, yes. yeah yeah in theory cool so we open on dormant dragons playing sardines which I think is the first time we've not opened on a soaring view of the disc I think you're right. We can probably double check that, but I believe you are correct. Cool. Let's just believe me uh, so I don't have to get up and check because I'm stuck in a blanket fort. Cool, cool. A drunken Vimes rambles in the gutter. The librarian snoozes through nefarious library footsteps and the elucidated brethren get together on a rainy eldritch night. Brother Fingers of the elucidated brethren has stolen a book. The brethren decide dragons are in order and luckily they have a handy, if charred, book. We meet a handsome carrot making his way to Oak Moorpork and learn that Vimes has just attended Gaskin's funeral. Carrot learns he isn't just a very tall dwarf, but is in fact adopted. He's been sent off to Oak Moorpork to join the Watch, books of laws and ordinances and a special protector in hand. At the next meeting of the elucidated brethren, they prepare their magical bits and bobs to summon a dragon and the Grandmaster finds himself full of fire. A thief makes a singy end as the Grandmaster celebrates his success. Carrot writes a letter home, having arrived in the city, found a lovely place to stay with Mrs. Palm and her daughters, and arresting the head of the Thieves' Guild via a visit to a drunken Vimes. Vimes is called to Vetinari's office to deal with his wayward recruit's actions, but gets away with a chat to Lupin Wants, Vetinari's secretary. Nobby takes Carrot on his first real patrol and teaches him the correct volume for 12 o'clock and all's well. Carrot gets a culture shock at a dwarf bar before arresting the landlord of the Mended Brum and, mended drum mended and drum. starts... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I can't do the accent or I'd make a really good joke at this point. <laughs> uh, he starts an epic bar brawl, eventually gets a bit of assistance from Vimes, Colin and Nobbs, and they celebrate coming out of the brawl alive with a quick drink or eleven. Uh, the Brotherhood attempts another dragon summoning. As the drunken watch stumble home through the shades, the summoned dragon handily takes out some nefarious unlicensed thieves, terrifying the pissed-up watchmen but leaving them unscathed. Scathed. And what? Unscathed. Unscathed. <laughs> Lord Vetinari visits the scene of the fiery crime and narrowly escapes being arrested by Carrot. He remains sceptical on the subject of draconology and Vine starts sleuthing. The librarian discovers a book has been stolen. 
Vimes sends Nobby and Colin out in plain clothes to listen to the word on the street and heads off to visit a dragon breeder, leaving Carrot in charge. The librarian reports a horrific crime to Carrot. The dragon, genus Draco nobilis, returns, surprising Colin and Noggs, as Sam meets Sybil, a well-bred dragon breeder. Carrot goes to the university library and learns about the missing book. Big fuck off dragon does the flamey flame. Vimes plans to sleuth but has a drink instead and wakes up to learn that a copy of How to Summon Dragons has been stolen from the university. Good work, Joe. Some of those consonants were in the right place. (laughs) Yeah, all right. You're so tired. God bless you. (laughs) It's been a long week. Yeah, it sounds like (laughs) Oh, well. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Do you want to do your... No, I'll do my quote first, because mine comes first. Yeah, there are no helicopters or loincloths, but there are Oh, dragons. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just... My, my eyes have started skipping over that line, because it is so incredibly pointless. But <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Is there one book, even, where there's both? How did this start? I can't remember. <laughs> but it's become the hill I'm dying on. I mean, fine. I'm not going to assault the hill, but... Look, I'm expanding the definition... I'm expanding the definition of helicopter to include dragons, so it feels relevant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go on, tell me a quote. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, page 70 in ours, anyway. Up in the darkness of the rafters, the librarian scratched himself reflectively. Life was certainly full of surprises. He was going to watch developments with interest. He shelled a thoughtful peanut with his feet and swung away into the distance. Uh, I picked that one out because it's got one of my favourite little uh, literary tricks in it, which is called a transferred epithet, um, which is when you apply an adjective to the wrong noun. So... Like, he smoked a nervous cigarette, or I walk a lonely road, something like that. All right, um, well, now I've got Green Day in my head. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and I'm I assuming like that, that Pratchett, and I'm sure I know this already, uh, is a fan of, was a fan of Woodhouse. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's no way it wasn't, right? Um, and P.D. Woodhouse is well known for, like, taking that trick to the extreme, which is... Uh, why I picked this, I just want an excuse to talk about it. Um, like his, uh, This is from the elements of eloquence again, because this is the book I am apparently going to reference at least once per Discworld book. Um, P.D. Woodhouse was a great master of the technique. Uh, his transfers are just a little too ridiculous to work. I lit a rather pleased cigarette. It's just a bit too much, as is, I balanced a thoughtful lump of sugar on the teaspoon. But Woodhouse's best for my considered money was his eyes widened and an astonished piece of toast fell from his grasp. (laughs) (laughs) Which I agree is an incredibly pleasing. That's marvellous. I love Woodhouse. I know. I think I might reread a little Chiefs and Worcester. Or rewatch a little Chiefs and Worcester, possibly. What was your quote, Joe? Hopefully more relevant to the book we're actually in rather than a thinly veiled excuse to talk about Woodhouse. (laughs) I found it really difficult to pick just one because I could quite happily just read this whole, like, there's a difference between when we talk about a book like Pyramids that neither of us really diehard loved. But it's full of cool little quips. But it's full of cool little quips and we could go really into the mythology of it all and the philosophy Mm -hmm. 
to this one where we love the book so much that it's very hard not to just record two hours of isn't it good though yeah it's hard to pull threads out of it yeah uh, so this is Vimes and Sybil seeing Draco Nobilis fly over one egg breathed the breeder just let me get my hands on one egg Vimes stared at her in genuine astonishment it dawned on him that he was very probably a flawed character <laughs> And I really like it because it does so much character work in two lines. What do you think that meant exactly? Because I saw it on the plan and went back and read it and I didn't quite... I kind of read it as... So, uh, spoilers for the full book, but obviously there's a whole thing between Vimes and Sybil and this flirtation has started. She's thought, oh, there's something so dashing about a captain. Yes. And I like that... In actual Sybil. fact, there's something so dashing about Lady Sybil. <laughs> Not so much about Vimes these gonna... days. <laughs> yeah. God, I love Lady Sybil. Right, we'll talk about Lady Sybil sorry, in a sorry, minute. Sorry, sorry, I love her. Mm. Anyway, mm. Uh, so they've just met. This is their first meeting. She's flirted a bit, but the book's already talked about the fact that Actually, I don't know if it has yet. The book will talk about the fact that she sort of resigned herself to not having romance in her life. Uh, that's mentioned once Vimes wakes up in her bedroom. So I think. Oh, works. yeah. So we're not quite there yet. Again, spoilers. For that the rest sounds of like a massive spoiler, but it's not. <laughs> it's re- yeah, it's really not. <laughs> but it builds something of this relationship early. And the fact that Sybil sees this, Sybil the dragon breeder sees this huge, vicious, terrifying killing mm-hmm. machine yeah. and really wants one of its eggs. Yeah. And Vimes goes, oh, there might be something wrong with me. I kind of read as a, God, why do I like this woman? Okay. Like, I think they've spent just enough time together for him to start liking her. And then uh. she says that, and he's sort of a, wait, she wants that. What's wrong with me for being in? And and it's the fact See, to that... to me, it was almost that he was going, she's seeing this cool scientific phenomenon, and I'm seeing, I'm seeing... A, a flying alligator, as he put it. Yeah. But, I mean, Vimes is also seeing a criminal. Yeah. Like, that's oh, yeah. how his mind works. This dragon is yeah. running around killing people. But it's the fact that he doesn't think there's something wrong with her. He thinks there's something wrong with him. Yeah. Like I said, I think it's just an amazing amount of character work that you immediately see Sybil as someone who sees dragons as this joyous thing and sees yeah. something she could learn from first. And Vimes thinks there's something wrong with him for not necessarily either thinks there's something wrong with him for being attracted to her or thinks there's something wrong with him for not thinking like she does yeah either way his first thought isn't god she's mad yeah they're in very different moments in that one moment yeah yeah but i because nice of who they both are i thought it was a really lovely little moment yeah. And I like how much of their characters you get in that. And so with that, onto characters. Mm. Let's talk Vimes. Vimes, 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 Vimes. Flying in a gutter. Oh, no. Yeah, I forgot so, how upsetting Vimes is in this first book. Uh, yeah, we like have mentioned it before. We talked about the fact that this book is like one of the big entry points in the beginning of yeah. the story arc. And the reason people love this is Vimes is a really cool fucking character. Like spoilers yeah. for the rest of the series, but he comes back a lot. We like him. We hang out with him. We love him. Yes. But he does start off fairly depressing, lying drunk in the gutter. But the big three line with him I want to talk about, like in this book, and I'll talk about this probably during all of the books that feature him, is his anger. Mm. He's a very angry character, and especially because I was rereading that Neil Gaiman thing about Terry Pratchett being a very angry man. Yes. 
the sort of two big characters even Pratchett talked about relating to the most were Vimes and Granny Weatherwax. Yeah. And in Vimes's case, he has this absolute fury in him. And it's just completely directionless at the start. Just a diffuse kind of everything anger. Yeah, and you see, when he's sober and he's really trying to sort this out, uh, Captain Vimes found he didn't like the idea of citizens, even of the shades, being turned into a mere ceramic tint. And they'd been done in front of the watch as if the watch didn't matter, if the watch was just an irrelevant detail. That was what rankled. Yeah. He's very angry and he's he's proud to a certain yeah. extent. And he's not happy that he's found himself in this position of being in charge of an organisation that's thought of as a joke. Yeah. And right from the beginning, you can see the the roots of the the kind of pride in the city itself and like his role in it even if it's not a real role at the moment like when he he's always talking about he's burning down my city he's yeah, yeah these are our citizens this is there's a big devotion to ang Morpork that yeah. he really carries yeah even and... if we don't take the slightly hideous metaphor of ang Morpork as woman it's got got all rivers and stuff in it no i I didn't say it wasn't a big woman, be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I love that interaction. But yeah, so I massively yeah. love Vines. I'm very yes. happy to be spending time with him. I love how much he cares because it's not just he is particularly devoted about Warpork. He's devoted to people, mm-hmm. even shit people, even thieves that are about to rob him. He didn't want to watch them burn to death in the street. Yeah. Um, and he really believes in people. Like he knows they're bastards, but he believes they're capable of more. Yeah. Vimes is the has the natural personality I wish I had. Um, I feel like I've got a lot of Vimes's bad sides and not a lot of his good sides. Realistically, I'm more of a knobby knobs. <laughs> I thought you were going to say veterinary. Where's your ego gone, Joanna? Have a fucking snack. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Have a Snickers. You're not arrogant enough. <laughs> Well, I've got, you get all self-deprecating when you've got low blood sugar. <laughs> I'll go and grab some chocolate if we do a coffee break and okay, I can get good. out of the fort. <laughs> okay, so Vimes, Vimes, Vimes. We're going to continue to check on, on him and his anger and our love for him as we yeah. work through the book. I feel like I'm going to mention now, at some point, and I'm not even sure if it's going to be this book or the next guard's book, I'll talk about like the drinking side of it and his character and how that affects it but i'm not i feel like that peaks in another book so yeah, i think i'll mention it briefly at some point on that yeah. One. yeah no no it's cool um yeah but. and obviously content warnings for when we do talk about it yeah because i know it's not easy yeah. for some yeah to be to be less horribly vague about it vimes's alcoholism will be a topic at some point but not today if you're worried about that but yeah so vimes begins a fabulous character arc from the gutter yay as good a springboard as any librarian yay i'd like to say it can he can only rise but we that's not entirely true <laughs> there are sewers right the librarian the librarian is having a lovely snooze yeah is he um explained in this book we said we'd keep an eye yep. out for that and i didn't okay cool cool he is, uh, the change was brought about by a magical incident, always a possibility when so many books are kept together, and he considered to get off lightly, mm-hmm. have gone off lightly. So yeah, I do, I, I'm pretty sure every time we hang out with the librarian, he's explained. Um, but we will keep watching for it. Yeah. 
It's nice yeah, he's, he's uh, kind of inserted himself into this storyline. I'd forgotten um, how much he was in it. Yeah, <laughs> especially near in the second and third sections. In this one, he is the victim of a most horrible crime. And we do Books worry out. about him. Yes, we do. We do. We like for, the librarian. Oh, and he's in the bar as well, isn't he? Yes, he's in the bar. Yes, because someone almost uses the M word. Oh, yeah, ca- that's part of why Carrot's arresting the landlord, uh, because uh, of the ape that's hanging around. Yeah. But he manages to not call him a monkey. Uh, so we've got the elucidated brethren. Mm-hmm. What the actual full title Miscellaneous. Uh, <laughs> Hallucinated brethren, comma, miscellaneous. Yeah. <laughs> They are I really like the actual wonderful. code they've got. The, the actual what? The actual the significant owl hoots in the night. Yet many great lords go sadly to the master's men. Oh yeah, yeah. What? Uh, hooray, hooray! The spinster's sister or something. Yeah, to the axemen all supplicants of the same height. <laughs> Which fair? So we've got brothers, doorkeeper, fingers, watchtower. I think there's a couple more, but I think they're the main named ones. Did you notice on page 11 when uh, Brother Fingers goes to the wrong door, it's the, he goes to the Brethren of E. Um, yes, the lost, which we talked about, the Lost City of E last yeah, week, didn't yeah. we? So, a little callback there. Whereas this gang are the elucidated Brethren of the Ebon Knight. Very important uh, to know the difference. And yes, we've got the Grandmaster, obviously, but I love some of the stuff he's doing with these characters. I just mm. want to find... They like, are gorgeously mundane they are there's amazing stuff about mundanity and bloody mindedness there's a whole thing about um are the people next door oppress me all night long Uh, i need time to learn to play (laughs) the tuba uh yeah it was very much help help i'm being oppressed come and see the subjugation (laughs) of the masses because people do this people act like they're being oppressed it's like the people who say oh you're taking away my free speech and it's like yeah Am I, or am I just calling you a dick for saying something? Like, yes, you have the right to free speech, not speech without consequences. If you're being a dick, am I going to call you a dick? It's an interesting illustration of kind of the hmm, wrongly directed anger towards an unequal system. Mm. So he's got the idea that the fact X, Y, Z to have so much more than the common person is is a bad thing instead of being cross at the system that's allowed that he wants to burn down a vegetable shop yeah he's very it's, angry it's at very the populist stuff it's uh it's fun probably run on that platform and get next prime minister job yeah it's amazing the sheer power of mundanity who'd have thought that their weakness could be a greater force than strength which is the grandmaster thinking about them and the fact they're so easily manipulated oh yeah he does because... crab bucket very well, does Pratchett. I'm not. He might have even been the one to coin that um, as the metaphor, uh, the crab bucket Crabs... metaphor, pulling people yeah, that... back in. Yeah, it's much much later. I think that's from Unseen Academicals. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Um, but the concept is throughout the books, isn't it? I think it's something yeah. Pratchett noticed and got cross about in society. And it's done particularly well in this book. Mm. So we also meet Carrot. Lance Constable Carrot, currently. Lance Constable Carrot. <laughs> I keep wanting, this is the other problem, is I don't really understand how ranks work and what orders, yeah. they, go, what orders <laughs> they go in. And obviously some characters change ranks as the books go on. I keep yeah. wanting to refer to everyone by the wrong title. Yeah, um, Lance Constable Carrot, we can do. Um, I'm pretty sure Nobby and 
colon stay their same ranks throughout Corporal Nob Sergeant Colon. So we're safe there. Colon is a sergeant through and through. Absolutely. Um I for so, because his name is Carrot, I always imagined he was ginger and never yeah. noticed the line. He's not called Carrot because of his hair. It's because of his shape. Because he's very broad shouldered. Do you not tapered. think he has red hair as well though? Now I'm picturing him with dark hair because if I picture him with dark hair and that shape, then I can picture him as Henry Cavill, which means I can just picture Henry Cavill and I really like doing that. I approve because he's from Jersey. But he is a beautifully moral character and that that remains throughout. Even if he starts picking up a bit of common sense by the end of the book, he's still very he's still very staunchly moral. Yes, he cares. He cares. Hmm. He, he wants does. to do a good job. He does, and he does a good job. He does a very good job. Very it's not his fault. No one told him about it. <laughs> There's a really nice little moment when uh, next character when they're writing to Ank Morpork to ask if Carrot can have a job in the Watch. Yeah, and this letter writing doesn't happen in the Dwarven Mines often. Um, his sister had been sent down to the village to ask Mistress Garlic the Witch how you stop spelling recommendation. <laughs> so tiny little cameo from Magra. Ah, a little call back. A little call forward to a future joke as well. I shall yes. say no more. <laughs> uh, Mistress Garlic. You never hear her called that in the witch's books, but written down. But she is Magra Garlic. Of words. It Mistress is. Garlic. But this is something this book does uh, really nicely in general. You can see, because we're at book eight of the series now, you can really see where he's built enough of a world. Mm. that he's starting to really play in it. Yeah. Like the first few books are very world-building and going back to the wizards and playing with them more and then world-building and world-building, like we're introducing stuff. Mm. So much of the world is built that he has a huge sandbox where he can think, oh, actually dwarves, so they're mining, so they're up in the mountains, which means they probably would be near, I can pull a witch in. And there's a couple of other little things like that I'll point out as we go along because I really enjoy it now that it's becoming a bit of a thing. So yeah, You're right, I think you probably had a lot of fun with this. You can really feel the joy coming off the page in this one. This like feels like it would have been a really satisfying book to write. So death uh, is the him. most recurring character of all. Yep, we still haven't had a book without him. I'm still looking out for it. To... That sounds like a general metaphor for death, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like death or taxes. The most recurring <laughs> character. Death. But I like pointing out that we have a visit from the Grim Reaper. When does, when does he come in? Uh, so page 38, he's there when uh, someone gets flamed. Oh, of course. One of the yes. thieves. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, I wouldn't like to have thought I suffered. Good. <laughs> very lovely little chat. Uh, cool. Right. Okay, let's get on to one of the big ones then. Let's okay. talk Vetinari. Vetinari, yes. I don't know why I'm trying lovely. to sing all of these. Because we're really hyped to be hanging out with these characters. So as yeah, we've I said, we have, today. we have met Vetinari before. Um, he, we talked way back in Color of Magic that there was a patrician character and it was a proto version of this. Obviously, changed a lot. And when yeah. they did the TV version of Color of Magic, they based it more off this than the patrician described in the books. Yeah, with meeting Lord Vatinari, the patrician of Ekmore book, who like so we did meet in sorcery, but he spent most of the book as a lizard. He is talking to Van Pugh, the head of the Thieves Guild, who Carrots attempted to arrest. And when the patrician is done with the conversation, he says, don't let me detain you, which is where we got our sign off for the episodes. I said, do not let me detain you, didn't he? Or something like that. Like, it's slightly different from how we were. Yeah, it's more of a do not let me detain you. Yeah. But yeah, it's the thing. It's the thing we do. It's come up in the book that we're reading. 
it's as the thing and the thing is the thing. As, 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 as I'm increasingly doubting, but if anyone is genuinely reading along with us instead of rereading, um, what a moment. This must have been so exciting. It's definitely a mile marker on your journey. Journey. <laughs> All right, now I'm starting to hate it. We're keeping journey. <laughs> Yes, turned it around. Uh, but yeah, Vetinari is fucking incredible. Um, wonderfully, it's not nihilistic. It's uh, misanthropy, possibly, but he doesn't hate it either. He just has a really fucking low opinion of people. Like his mind and how he rules is fascinating. I like the small threat thing where he's talked about like forming the guilds and then sort of summons them and, oh, I know who you are, where you live, what kind of horse you ride. I know where your wife has your hair done. I know where your lovely children, how old are they now? My doesn't time fly. I know where they play. Don't forget what we agreed. Yes. And he is, he's fascinating. He's Machiavellian ruling. Do I mean Machiavellian? I always yes. feel like I'm, yeah. Uh, there's a great line about, um, he, how just the fact that he makes Ankh-Morpork operate. He yeah. makes the city function. He really hates mime artists. <laughs> now, this is which... interesting. I, I meant to write this down and I didn't. Um, it feels like Ankh-Morpork has this bit of history that's never explored where everything was a lot more organised. Like, just, just Carrot's law book seems to hint at this time and it's almost like Aunt Walpole then went into the dark ages and is now coming out in a renaissance I blame the wizards yeah it'll be them won't it but I like the way the patrician he's, he's juggling all of these things to make everything work perfectly by making everyone compete with each other rather yeah. than rising up against him yeah uh, he disliked the word dictator he never told anyone what to do he didn't have to <laughs> because they sort of do it. And I like the fact that he's founded a lot of the groups that are seeking his overthrow. Yeah, that was funny. Keep life interesting. <laughs> I just Damn. love the... I love everything, obviously, about all of the Discworld books ever, but I yeah. really enjoy the guild system as a way to design a city that runs. And I'll talk about this when we get to the uh, the last episode on Guards Guards, but the uh -huh. fact that to have a character as intelligent as Vetinari who makes everything work, the writer yeah. has to be that intelligent. Yes, And it's such yes. an insight into how amazing Pratchett's brain was. And I'm very glad he never turned to evil. Mm. Yeah, so we were talking about the other week, isn't it? Like he was genuinely a genius. It's not just like, we like his books. It's the more you learn about him. It's like he was an extraordinary mind who wrote funny books. Yep. And yeah, we're all very grateful he never decided to become a supervillain. As far as we know, he didn't. Once... Once, Lupine once. The character, wants. not the past tense. <laughs> um, once with the a wah. Squiggle, sec, pee pee. Yeah. Talking about once, the, like the fact him and Vimes grew up in similar gangs in the shades. Yeah. And once was the person who was always stood sort of near the gang leader, yeah. coming up with the clever ideas, and that was his natural place in the order of things. As opposed yeah. to Vimes, who was just one of the sort of grunty yes men. It gives it, it doesn't even quite give him a sympathetic background because that's not a character anyone wants to relate to, even if they do. Um, no. But it does give him a source for the kind of anger he has. Yeah, because that, the person who has always stood a bit near the leader coming up with yeah. things and being allowed to stay despite being pell and scrawny will always be a bit bitter and really want to have something to do with actual leadership. Yeah. And the person like Vimes, who's always been a middle-ranking grunt, 
who then becomes an adult and finds themselves still kind of in the gutter yeah will again be bitter but it, they'll want to be better rather than destroying something else if that makes sense yeah again it's really nice character building in that it's just a it only takes a couple of lines about what gangs they were in as children to really give you everything you need to know about that person. And um, the night watch you've put down as his own character, so justify yourself. I wasn't really sure where to put this in, but I wanted to talk about the night watch because where we talked about the fact this is the beginning of a lot of arcs, the arc is centered around the night watch as a part of Ank Morpork's mm-hmm. existence. And so I decided characters. Because yeah. it's not quite location, because it shifts location by the end of the book. Yeah, and I, it was more. It's more than just a talking point. It is very much a thing that then runs through the books. Mm-hmm. And at this point in this book, it's an organisation that's it's thought of back in dwarves and what people remember from Varnesh's grandfather's day as quite a noble thing. And they were heroes, but in now modern day Ankh Morpork, it exists of whispered 12 o'clock and all's well very yeah. little done about actual crimes because the crime is dealt with by the thieves guild the assassins guild and the palace guard yeah and it looks like the day watch has gone entirely by this point yeah the day watch kind of doesn't exist and that's something that gets a bit retconned in later books like there yeah. is a day watch and it is is its own functional thing yeah like you can't really look at but it's quite chronology. cleanly retcon- retconned as in its existence isn't necessary for this point in time to be yeah only the night but watch it, left it is very much just this tiny scruffy thing and i this idea of being having to be nocturnal for work yeah works very well for colon and his wife yeah who <laughs> communicate entirely through letter writing but they get very it when the rest of the world is going to bed <laughs> they uh they spend your whole time in damp dark streets in a world of shadows and it attracts the kind of people who are inclined to that kind of life yeah which is interesting when you look at who the members of it are at this point the three of them yeah. is you have Vines, who's pretty much resolutely put himself in the gutter, mm. Colin, who wants to be told what to do and doesn't want to see his wife, and Nobby, who has been disqualified from the human race for shoving. <laughs> also, I want to point out, we're talking about the movie references, uh, that the Latin over the door says, Fabricati, DM, PVNC, make my day punk. <laughs> but Colin says it says to protect and serve, which, yeah, which is I'm the not going to start. Slogan, which is now yeah. just ironic um and yes depressingly let's not start on a cab today let's get into that next week because i've yeah yeah i have i have got thoughts on it but i do also think that you can definitely separate what the night watch is in ankh in the beginning of guards guards to yeah i mean if anything it's a nice demonstration that completely defunding and the police uh, allows you to rebuild it from the ground up yeah hold on Colon, yeah, as I said, one of life's sergeants. He was the sort of man who, if he took up a military career, would automatically gravitate to the post of sergeant or would be a butcher or something otherwise. He's very yeah. big and very red-faced. Right at the beginning of... Right in Colour of Magic, mm-hmm. I talked about there was a big red-faced watchman who I don't know if he was ever named, but he's very much a proto-colon. Yeah. And he is this sort of... And he's lovely, like... He's one of those characters who is a bit of a dick and thinks a certain way and that's it. But he's he's very likable and you you just accept him for what he is and he's a joy to read. Yeah. Yeah, and he's never so set in his little bigotries that they can't be easily dislodged. Yes, and he unlearns all of them very quickly as yeah. the book goes on. Yeah. He's like the nice version of the commoner that 
the weaselly grubby hallucinated brethren like he's a he's still got the slightly small-minded focus but he's got uh just an inherently good heart behind it so it never gets bitter like that he's accepted what his place is within the society he's functioning in yeah and he's gone with that he's not bitter yeah he's he's opportunistic but he's (laughs) not bitter and I really love when they're put into plain clothes and Nobbs is sort of slash doublets and flog- frogging and flared pantaloons. Yeah. And Bums <laughs> realises that actually he's a bit of a peacock and has this whole life outside of his work. I really enjoyed the description of uh, Nobby's behind the ear ashtray. Uh, always dog ends in some elephant's graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so, but Colin and Nobbs as well, it's just a great double yeah. act. Yeah, it is. Yeah, there's a, a pair of lazy opportunists with enough character difference to make them really play off each other well, and I'm glad they are core members of the watch. Right. So, so Lady Sybil fucking Rampkin to give her her full title. Yeah, because Lady Sybil fucking Rampkin is the fucking best. Yes. Look, do you have any idea how much restraint I'm practicing by not making this entire episode about how much I fucking love Sybil Rampkin? Who is? It must the be a best. lot of. A lot of restraint because you know I wouldn't actually argue. Her very first line in a Discworld book is, uh, "Ah, good man. Do you know anything about mating?" <laughs> I feel like a class traitor for loving her so much because she's very much a posh. She's a lady, as in she's titled. She lives in this yeah. huge, very expensive house, but she's brilliant. She never looks down on others. She looks for the best in all of them. She sinks an awful lot of money into charity. She loves her dragons. She's somewhere between the horsey people I've known and the dog people I've known. Yeah. And it's it's not naive, but there's kind of a humility. She knows she is very well off and has a certain position. Yeah. And rather than thinking that she is innately better than anybody else because of that, she knows it might make people uncomfortable. So she very much tries to put them at ease and find something nice to say. Yeah, yeah. She's a born diplomat. Mm. And she's fiercely intelligent as well. She's not actually stupid enough to think that, I don't know, Nobby is really the cream of humanity. No. But she's willing to find the good in him. And I think she's good enough to convince herself that this is the trait I should focus on. Everything about her is fantastic. She is clever and she's funny and she gets a really lovely story in this book and as the books go on. Um, but I do want to talk about one of the descriptions of her. Prehistoric men would have worshipped her and in fact had amazingly managed to carve lifelike statues of her thousands of years ago. She had a massive chestnut hair, a wig because dragons. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about this more as we go through the next two parts of the book, but the descriptions aren't always flattering of her. Mm-hmm. And as much as I love her character and I love how this book onwards how she's written Mm -hmm. she is written as a fat woman and there are some jokes about how she's wealthy but she's not really very attractive Mm -hmm. and the book almost pokes fun at vimes for being attracted to her yeah um i feel like the i I might have just missed a couple but i feel like the descriptions of her size are more in the vein of the one you liked of um the duchess in yeah no they're not all unflattering and I don't think it's unflattering to call someone fat, but sometimes exactly, the, yeah. the book sniggers at it. 
Uh, and like I said, I'll talk about that a lot more in the second and third book. There's a really great bit about it in uh, Tansy Rayner Roberts' book that I've quoted before, uh-huh. um, the Practice Women essays. Oh, yeah. But I wanted to point out that description here because it will be a theme as it goes on. But also, having just read Pyramids, which almost every female character was sexualized in some yes. way, it is nice to have a female character who's very front and centre in the book where her appearance isn't put first. Yeah, it's very, very personality. Yeah. Yeah. It's much more about her personality than her appearance. But it's upsetting then that when it is her appearance, it is with some sniggering. Yeah, I guess. Not very upsetting. But it's, it's, you know, I don't get to see larger people in the media getting to be heroes and brilliant very often. Yeah. Which is why, as much as I was going to try and be very open-minded about the Watch series that's happening, like the fact that, Sybil is young and skinny is a bit frustrating yeah. <laughs> just let there be a larger older woman on screen being badass because there fucking should be right locations should we talk about locations yeah so obviously we're spending the entire book in Ankh Morpork uh-huh. apart from a quick visit to Carrot's family mine so on the keeping an eye on is there ever a Discord book where we don't go to Ankh Morpork we're not there yet yeah I really like Vimes's drunk description of the city the first one on the very first page the city was a thing woman that's what it was woman roaring ancient centuries old strung you along let you fall in thingy love with her and then kicks you in a thingy thingy in your mouth tongue tonsils teeth yeah <laughs> and it, Vimes genuinely does love this city in a not very healthy way I think we get so much like you don't really have Ankh-Morpork and how it functions as a city until you get to the watch books you have some vague idea of that there are guild systems and there is a patrician and there are wizards yeah but all the books we've had so far that have taken place in Ankh-Morpork mostly have been wizard books I think the fact that Vimes like personifies Ankh-Morpork so much leaves him open to a lot of hurt yeah from it because you cut at the end of the day like it's a fun metaphor and Ankh-Morpork is almost a character but you can't expect a city to treat you as a human would. And I think yeah. he, he never quite grasps that. He always feels personally affronted when something goes wrong with the city. I think he does more in later books as he develops a relationship with somebody. He tra- he has I think been... it's better, but he never quite lets it go. No, he doesn't let anything go. Uh, so yes a couple of little location moments uh there's a reference to the high energy magic building at the university it is just a little reference but it's i think it's the first time that's been pointed out and we will be spending time in the high energy magic building as we go on yeah that's just a fun little joke here is like a science parallel but which is what is the callbacks and call forwards in this one is you can really start like i said seeing him play and it's really fun Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, obviously Carrot's Mine, which is up in the mountains and I assume is somewhere near the Ramtops. Also, shout out Mended Drum. We have a bit of a watch seeing whether it's the mended or broken drum this week. It's yeah. the mended drum at the moment. Ah, and they they have a troll working there as a splatter called Detritus. Oh, oh. I wonder if we'll see him again. I hope so, because I've now learned how to say Detritus and stopped saying Detritus. How long did that take? I don't want to talk about it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So little things, talk to me about eye-watering words, because I'm assuming you got very into looking at eye-watering words. When the Supreme Grand Master is making his minion swear an oath, he uses words such as figgin, welch it, mool, 
the dictionary of eye-watering words, which include things like welch it, a type of waistcoat worn by certain clockmakers. Point is, it's fun to find words that sound eye-watering, but actually mean something very mundane. Footnotes in general in this book are great, but I do really like that like Figgin gets translated as a nice patry, and then Figgin's then I'll keep featuring in the book. Yes. You know. I tried to look it up, by the way, and it looks like Pratchett made it up. But anyway, yeah, now we're in a secret society. I thought you could probably swear the oath to make you a proper member. Joanna, if you would please repeat after me. I solemnly swear that I shall not divulge the secrets of this order. I solemnly swear that I shall not divulge the secrets of this order. Lest I be kicked in the resoles. Lest I, lest I be kicked in the resoles. And see my gozzard torn apart by wild dogs. And see my gozzard turn apart by wild dogs. My malkin burned on a ceremonial flame. My malkin burned on a ceremonial flame. And my scrog pruned with righteous secateurs. And my scrog pruned with righteous secateurs. Excellent. Now, do Wait, you know the actual meaning of any of those? <laughs> I know Rasol's is a food one, and I don't know that because uh-huh. I'm a chef. I know it because of the episode of Blackadder series three with the actors where they're plotting what to do with the, su- the about how they're going to kill the servant and eat him. And they say, servant Rasol's will our supper be. Ah, very good. Yeah, but basically it's a little meat patty and pastry or breadcrumbs. Ooh, sounds good. Um, Gozzard is a goose herder. Yes. Which I pity the person with that job because geese are dicks. Yes. I'm maybe yes, basing yeah. that on the untitled goose game. <laughs> I got bitten by a goose when I was a toddler, so. Swans are our souls as well. Fucking mm. dickheads. How about Malkin? This this is possibly also related to your profession. Is this another food thing? I don't know, Malkin. No. Uh, it is, is a, it a knife. A mop. A bundle of rags fastened to the end of a stick, especially for cleaning out a baker's oven. I was about to say that's why I don't know it, because I have people to do the mopping for me. But uh, because of fellow <laughs> and only one person in the kitchen at a time, I now don't have people to do the mopping for me. Especially not mopping the oven. Um, it's very rare I mop the oven. <laughs> the and the, Do you know how one would go about pruning a scrog? No. How does one prune a scrog? much like anything else it is a stunted bush i thought that one sounded particularly eye-watering scrog it is eye-watering but if it's if the bush is stunted why does it need pruning well even stunted plants need pruning to encourage fresh growth well i live in that a sounds like a metaphor don't... but it's not it's just horticultural advice <laughs> need a horticulture sorry Wait, and so i'm now in a have i what have i actually signed said an oath for am i in a secret society with you now uh, yes, I haven't decided what yet, but now I've got that on record, I can uh, apply it to whatever society I decide to start. If our listeners at home could say the oath along as well, and then we're all oh, in I the same boat, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are, like the whole point of having a podcast was to form a cult, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think that was cool. the end of the um, um, Yeah, where are we? Stones with holes in. Oh, I'm sorry, stones with holes in. Yes. Um, now, I think I think this comes up again in the Tiffany Aching books. Um, but I've been on the lookout for a nice stone with a hole in for ages. In this book, it's talked about as kind of the vaguely magical items that are brought in to power the dragon summoning. And Pratchett quite likes the idea of them, and I quite like the idea of them. Unfortunately, we live in 
flint and chalk country and the stones have to have a natural hole in them which is pretty difficult to achieve with either of those but they're known as hagstones or adder stones most commonly yeah and legend tells that an adder stone is the hardened saliva from a huge tangle of the snakes which is a bit gross but i still want one (laughs) and then i think they make like the holes with their tongues i don't know He's a I'm pretty the hagstone is something to do with witchcraft. Yeah, yeah. So it's, some folklore says they're keys or gateways into the fairy realms, which seems a little unsafe if my memory of future books serves me well. But oh, in Russia, stones. Russia, yeah. the the stones were inhabited by chicken guardians, like their spirits called. Should have given this one to you, Korinibog. So they're placed in farmyards. I said I'm going to start keeping an eye out for stones with holes in. Yeah. A final note was uh, something that made me laugh while I was researching this was uh, one of those Google suggested searches was Hagstone's Wholesale, which sounds very anglophonic. <laughs> Here's your Hagstone's. That's all I've got to say about stones with holes in, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> On page 46, and this sort of links to the formation of guilds and things, but there was a strange foreign word that had come into Ankh-Morpork lexicon. Uh-huh. In sewer ants. Ah, we've seen that before. We've got the legacy of two flowers prospered in the city and insurance is very in now. So yes, I enjoyed that little throwback. I like when uh, they think that when the watch are drunk and they've ended up in the shades and they're starting uh-huh. to think about praying and Vimes is wondering if there's a god yeah. of coppers. Because he's saying there's a beggar's god and a whore's god and a thieves' god and an assassin's god, but there probably isn't a god who'd look kindly on hard-pressed, fairly innocent law enforcement officers who are quite definitely about to die. Yeah, it's not very romantic, is it? No, and that's the point that practically makes, because obviously there are gods for almost everything, and as the books go on, there ends up being like a goddess of things stuck in drawers, who is yeah. my favourite Discord deity. Soz off, Lo, but you're a very close second. I really love the whole nature of swamp dragons because I, I don't think they've even been mentioned in any of... Oh, no, they have. The swamp dragons have definitely been mentioned. Yeah, uh, but Possibly when we, met, when we met dragon dragons because we have met dragons before. We have, although they were At the Wormberg. They, yeah. were imagine, they were imaginary dragons, which I can't do in this economy. <laughs> you know how much imagination costs rounds at the moment? Jesus. I love the names of the Swamp Dragons, like Dewdrop, Maybelline, Talonthrust the First, yes. and Gayheart, Talonthrust of Anx. This is what I mean about it having the fun parallels to people being posh around horses, because uh-huh. horses have ridiculous ones. Like we had, uh, I say we had, when I was a kid and my family had shares in a couple of horses, we had like Fantasy Crusader, who we all called George, mm-hmm. and Fantasy Believer, who we all called Beaver, because I was very young. I nicknamed oh. him Beaver and didn't know that there were any dirty conversations. Beaver the horse. Um, Yes, Beaver, George and Beaver, they were the two. And L, was it L? Ella was one who, because that was, uh, I can't remember what name she ended up running over, but it was very fucking poncy. But uh, Ella was because the woman who ran the stables where she was born's uh, favourite ballet dancer was Ella something. And this horse had very beautiful legs. She was a very, she was a beautiful, beautiful horse. She was lovely. Anyway. Before I become a total fucking horsey wanker. The measurements are fun because like the measurements for horses are weird. They're all hands and hands are, do you know what Matlock's meant to be the parallel? Obviously thumbs instead of hands because the dragons are so small, but I have no idea. I don't remember like, uh, how they were measured. Yeah. 
but then you've got the weird names for the ages as well so you've got cobs hens yeah dams which again with horses you've got like gelding stallion mare there's so many different weird ones for like if it was born on a rainy tuesday after the third of august or yeah colts colts are very young male horses okay a gelding is a male horse that's had its bits done yeah uh and then a stallion is obviously an older male horse but there's also other stuff in between there and for female horses there is a lot more to it than just mares cool Uh, if any of our listeners know more about this because i'm obviously talking out completely out of my ass feel free to let us know i'm a bit scared of horses so i love horses they're very big and easily panicked so you know if you great combination with my flinchy personality yeah, there is a lot of height and weight and not a lot of brain controlling it. They are yeah. big, beautiful, and really fucking dumb. I always forget Anxious. how big they are as well. Like when I come across a horse in a stable, I'm like, me, your head is as big as me. This is ridiculous. Stop yeah, being you, so big. You yeah. don't really realise until you see them that close. I, obviously, I'm saying everything with a caveat. I get now that like horse racing is not great and animals shouldn't mm. be used for sport, but it's yeah. it's I grew up with it when I was a kid. And they are like you get used to them really quickly if you're young yeah, also yeah i'm sure yeah had a couple uh but if you don't get used to them really quickly when you're young then of course they're fucking terrifying because they are massive and really stupid yeah anyway <sighs> anyway swamp dragons are fucking great yeah yeah the nature of swamp dragons the ridiculous names and how they breed and the fact that they are just chemical factories orbited by posh women <laughs> yeah properly about- posh not <laughs> properly posh enough not to reaching me. yeah posh yeah. enough to look not like they're in poverty yeah yeah um, and which insanely uh, self-confident insanely self-confident but in a sort of but again not in a dickish way so on to the bigger stuff uh talk about secret societies oh i will i have a lot about secret societies in fact i figured you would and so i saved myself a rabbit hole yes um so secret societies are mocked in lots of types of media. Like, what springs to mind to you as the real world example? I always think of like Freemasony type things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to a, it's not a secret society, but the kind of weird on one leg handshaky. Like the KKK definitely has some background mm. in the same weird. There's some vibes. And it's the secret to the point where the, the, the identity of the members was... Yeah, the society itself isn't secret, but the nature of what's yeah. going on and who is doing it is yeah. a secretive thing. That's cool. Okay, so I'm going to take us back a few hundred years for context. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> now, I'm going to try and pronounce some German names. So my Brilliant. sincere apologies to any German listeners. Amazing. Um, <laughs> So Adam Weishaupt was born in 1748 in Bavaria. He's got a proper protagonist backstory. So he was orphaned as a young child and taken in by his rationalist godfather, Johann Adam Freiherr von Ickstadt. Let's call him Johann. Johann. (laughs) Even though Ickstadt is a very fun word to say. He was a professor at the University of Ingolstadt. In Bavaria, uh, he was actually a colleague of Adam, Adam's father before father passed away. And young Adam, in this new environment, kind of devoured all the latest books on philosophy that were in his godfather's library. Um, do you know Christian Wolf? 
No, not personally. Wolf. It was basically... The <laughs> yes, of the Somerset Wolves. Basically, he was the the big dog in philosophical circles until... Wait. Sorry, you just said Christian Wolf was the, was the big dog. Ha! Genuinely unintentional, but very <laughs> pleasing. <laughs> um... Sorry. He was the Go bee's on. knees in philosophical <laughs> circles. <laughs> I can't think of any non-animal ones um, until Kant barged in and did the whole counting. Fucking Kant. Fucking Kant. Real he was a real ant. <laughs> <laughs> Very rarely stable. But uh, Wolf was very into like the practical applications of philosophy. So how one could take these concepts and use them to be a good person within the world we're in. Uh, where it's high-minded Kant and the Enlightenment followed. Oh, no, we're in the Enlightenment now, aren't we? You know. Yeah. All of this, anyway, was a bit shady in 18th century Bavaria because it was hardcore conservative Catholic, uh, which, as we know, isn't the best environment for free thinking. But despite all kind of this early education and philosophy. Adam seemed to follow a fairly outwardly conventional path. He went to the university his godfather worked at. He graduated at 20 with a doctorate of law and then became a professor of law and then got married. But in 1784, when Adam was 36, the Bavarian state got its hands on some writing. They got the rulers super worked up. Turns out Weishaupt was running a super complex, super seditious, super secret society called the Illuminati. Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so it turned out he'd founded the Illuminati a little while back in 76. 1776. Whenever I say 76, it's just very disco. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Let's imagine everybody in flares. But he was he that he became a member of the Freemasons basically and used his membership to recruit what he would Uh. call illuminated Freemasons at the time. Um, Apparently, basically, he noted humanity's propensity for enjoying these shadowy organisations, making a game from it, and just being weird about it, and decided to use it for good. So. To quote, he wanted to promote freedom from all religious prejudices, cultivates the social virtues and animates them by a great, feasible and speedy prospect of universal happiness, which, you know, sounds a bit naive, but at least well-intentioned. The hope being that if his members became prominent in society, so like became educators or lawmakers later, they would take these kind of egalitarian teachings and change the world slowly for the better. Things sped up a little bit because Adam kind of snagged a former Freemason called Baron von Tnig. It was way better known and more socially in there already and more naturally inclined to this sort of thing, basically. So he introduced the things like code names and rituals and 13 levels of hierarchy and all of that kind of nonsense. But it worked because... The Illuminati expanded to hundreds and hundreds of members fairly quickly and took on the structure of operating in various cells that weren't known to each other and reporting to superiors whose identities were also secret, which is the structure used since in a lot of real and fictional secret societies. And this is kind of where it started. But anyway, Weishaupt and the Baron fell out 
eventually Baron left the Illuminati and at around the same time, another ex-member basically knocked on the society to the Bavarian Catholic government, adding in a few embellishments to make the Illuminati seem more evil. Evil. Uh, The Illuminati was banned. Many members arrested uh, and Weishaupt eventually had to flee Bavaria entirely. But I mean, during the arrest, they got a load of documents of people they were arresting. The most heinous crimes they managed to pin on them were pretty heinous by their standards. But I mean, I'll let you judge. They were the defense of atheism, a plan to create a female branch of the order, medical instructions for abortions, you know, pretty much what we'd have in a secret society if we were forced to operate under Catholic rule. Pretty much exactly how you guess membership then became punishable by death. Right. So yeah, there's still like conspiracy theories now about the Illuminati. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, that's the weird thing. Like, so the Illuminati, I, was, I, didn't, I don't think I even knew it actually existed. Like, but at the end of the day, it lasted like eight years. Um, I knew it existed because like the Illuminati was a big part of those really bad Dan Brown books that everyone was obsessed with, like the Da Vinci Code and stuff. Yeah, see, I never read those. I kind of assumed uh, he'd... I'm jealous of you I'm very jealous of you (laughs) there's time in my life I'll never get back but so I I looked it up then to see how much of it was based in reality and the Uh Illuminati was because a lot of people thought like the Da Vinci Code was legit and formed actual conspiracy theories around it yeah that was a problem um (laughs) yeah yeah I mean but because of some of like the the embellishments people gave the story of the Illuminati at the time it just really sunk into culture and kind of rooted in all these conspiracy theories. I mean, a bit like the, um, oh, fuck me, uh, Templars, except yeah. they were just nowhere near as important as the Templars have been. Uh, so I had, as it's quite funny, but that conspiracy theories about secret societies pulling levers of government in the shadows are quite so perpetuating, because in reality, organizations pulling leaves of government do so pretty openly like lobbying yeah just it's a big, and other forms of legal bribery as just look at the finance in the brexit campaign and then cry yeah i mean i guess it's just not as fun to write best-selling novels about but yeah uh yeah so heroic tropes yeah. this is uh trope me up I, I don't have loads for the first section this is something i want to keep looking at as we work through the book Ooh, ongoing talking point ongoing talking point it's fun uh, each book what it parodies and this uh book by the time we're at the third point it's parodying clint eastwood movies police procedurals and these big hero stories this it's the big hero tropes the one i look at it starts with the dedication he's sort of saying you know the palace guard or the city guard their purpose in any work of heroic fantasy is around chapter three or ten minutes into the film to rush into the room attack the hero one at a time and be slaughtered but no one ever asked them if they wanted to and the book is dedicated to them but it's this lovely idea of you know we're summoning a dragon so a king can slay it and we will have a king and we will have chivalry Mm. and stories go a certain way and it's the same thing like with weird sisters this Mm. is the way the story is supposed to go and therefore this is how it's going to happen yeah and then the book really plays with that and it does it really nicely in this like starting with that dedication but looking at it as it goes through anyway Yeah, dragons. Slaying dragons and being heroic. So it's yes. a, that's more of a 
brief mention of the Palace Guard dedication and what it means to be a hero, and we'll keep looking at that as we go through the book. Cool. Now you've, sorry, cryptically written down, things were better when, dot, dot, dot. Well, this is another one of the fun running themes through the book, and this is uh, the hallucinated brethren's motivation is, well, yeah, if we've got kings, then we'll have chivalry and... They'll make sure everything's better. Things were better when we had kings. Children didn't talk back to you and knew their P's and Q's. And there is this fucking blurry nostalgia. And it exists in, in life. It exists in the in the UK. Obviously, we do have royalty still. But, you know, people always look back and think, well, things were better when yeah. we, I don't know. Nostalgia for a time this- that never was. Yeah. Things were better when we didn't have all this LGBTQIA nonsense. And it's like, well... <laughs> No, no, things might have been easier for you, but it was mm. definitely horrific for people who were getting chemis- chemically castrated. I think you can tell there's something uh, inherently wrong with the British attitude that we seem to fetishize blitz spirit like that's a time we want to go back to when people well, the, were being bombed in their homes. People sheltering in the underground is the biggest uh, example of that. Yeah. The underground was never meant to be used as a bomb shelter. And in fact, people were locked out of the underground during uh, early air raids because that's not what it was for. And there were supposed to be purpose-built shelters, but those shelters never got built. So eventually people broke the locks on the underground so they had somewhere to go. And then photographs were taken and it was used to promote the blitz spirit. Yeah. My my friend's grandma lived through the blitz in London as a young teenager and yeah I mean, PTSD. Was, yeah exactly yeah she's like i mean yes we carried on with things because you had to because you needed to eat but everybody was terribly scared all the time we weren't just stoicism yeah it's <laughs> so weird yeah and um, it's, it's a proper it's a, a propagandic nostalgia gandic Oh, propagandic. Sorry, yeah, not propagandic. As in propaganda, like <laughs> I, I think I just made that word up. I'm going with it. We're keeping it. I like gandic, it, which is like a gander, like a goose gander. Yeah, so it's it's a lot like geese. <laughs> in the disaster. <laughs> but the chivalry one makes me laugh because uh, chivalry comes up a lot uh, when people are talking about feminists. Oh, you don't want men to be chivalrous for you then. You don't want them to open doors. It's like, mate, I want people to open doors for me and pull out chairs for me. It doesn't have to be men. I like not having to open doors. I like sitting down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's nothing to do with feminism. Yep. It's like, oh, but you don't, you can't do that for a woman anymore. She'll get offended. It's like, will she? Or will she get offended when you put your hand on her waist to guide her through the door? Or, you know, when you sexually harass her? Oh, but um, no, the reason I pointed this out is because it's a theme that continues on from the last book, Pyramids. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pyramids was all about keeping in this particular time because this is when things are best and we don't want things to change or move on. Yeah. And you can see where sort of Project started with an idea there and he's brought it through to this book mm-hmm. and gone, well, things have moved on, but what happens to the people who are so determined to go back to the past? Yeah. In the Supreme Grandmaster's case, it's kind of hard to see his motivation. Does he want... He doesn't want to go back to Kings because he thinks chivalry and stuff will be better. He's looking for power for himself and sees this as the way. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's never explained in depth how he intends to change society, just that he would do a better job. Yeah, it's it's that he wants power for power's sake thing. Yeah, 
Yeah. As opposed to wanting power because he thinks he can make things better, which is always an interesting villain motivation. Yeah, it's um, and it kind of went went along with the easy dismissal of the fact that Malachite, who had written the original summoning book, had clearly come to a charred end. Yes, because it didn't fit in with his narrative, so he sort of ignored it. Yeah, and he's obviously all about the narrative because he's looking to summon a dragon and then have it face a hero. Yeah, and he knows how to exploit the. Uh, the nature of narrative yes which is i think whenever these books does a parody thing of like the witches and the witch stories and fairy tales and then the heroes and stuff there are characters who look to exploit that narrative power and it's always very fun yeah anyway speaking of narrative dwarves yeah what well dwarves are in stories true (laughs) i i love I love Don't let my polite bafflement stop you. I love Discworld Dwarves specifically, and this is the first book we've really hung out with the dwarves mm-hmm. beyond mild. Like There was some stuff in Colour of Magic and Light Fantastic, but it yeah. kind of gets, again, retconned massively. Yeah, uh, Those books are just guidelines and not much more. And they're not, apart from appearance-wise, they're not particularly tropey or particularly parody of tropey. There are bits of it, yeah. they're mining, there's there's obviously elements of the Tolkien dwarf there. Yeah. Everyone which, has a beard. Yeah. I feel like the dwarf thing has faded out of pop culture a bit more than the elf thing has. Yeah, I think partly because it's difficult not to be offensive. Yeah. Um, like outside of Tolkien stuff, it's it's still there in some fancy stuff and like uh Actually, the, the Dragon Age games I was talking about have like dwarf characters and a whole dwarf society based around mining, and it's very well written. But I love, I do love the dwarves here. You've got the whole. It doesn't really stick to it in this, but it will become much more of a thing where um, dwarves are all him mm. because they're all short and beardy and wear lots of clothes, and gender mm-hmm. is more or less optional. I'm very there for gender being more or less optional because absolutely ugh, gender. Uh, but then immediately refers to Carrot's adopted mother as mother and her yeah and i did notice that, that. <laughs> <laughs> so but it could just be you know gender is optional but these particular characters have chosen to have genders yeah or we'll refer to them like this for your ease of yeah consumption so, the translation stuff is really fun like uh the whole idea of um carrot's father being the king but it really mm-hmm. translates more as mind supervisor yeah every mind has a king <laughs> yeah that's a nice thing and they don't like metaphors don't really work because if you're working in a mine you have to be very literal minded yeah there's a lovely thing of Vanessa saying oh and Bob's your uncle and after a long thought even she says well surely Bjorn Strong in the arm is my uncle yeah (laughs) and Carrot tries to do metaphors and doesn't do very well uh bless his cottons but so he sort of explains something then says and Bjorn Strong in the arm's your uncle (laughs) This all kind of comes into why I love Carrot because he's very, he is clever and you get to see more of his intelligence in the later books, but he's very simple from this dwarven upbringing and this lack yeah. of metaphor. Yes, Un- uncomplicated is the word you'd use to avoid simple, I think. Yeah, but uh, when you get to Carrot shouting at people in the dwarf bar, you've got these translation oh, moments yeah. that are really fun. Because, What's your favourite? Well, there's... The, what I like is that Pratchett translates it and then does a literal translation. 
okay. So listen, listen, sunshine, and then in brackets, literally, the stare of the great hot eye in the sky whose fiery gaze penetrates the mouth of the cavern. <laughs> and there's another one where it's... Uh, okay literally translates as all correctly beams and beamed and propped <laughs> and then like good day good day what is all of this that's going on here in this place which is the sort of lolo what's all this then so we yeah. managed to do the police jokes and stuff but the translation stuff and the king things is fun because there aren't necessarily direct translations between languages and what we learn when we learn languages a direct translation isn't yeah and i saw a great example of this recently on reddit and it was on one of the foodie subreddits. Uh-huh. And it was an argument about pan, as in P-A-I-N, the French word for bread. Oh, sure. Yeah. But I'm in a subreddit called Breadit for people making bread. And someone yeah. posted a brioche. And then everyone's having going saying, well, that's not bread. And he said, the French don't treat it as bread. The French call it cake, not bread. So you can't post it in here because this is a bread subreddit, not a cake subreddit. And basically, pan refers to a subsect of, bre- of baked goods in French. Mm-hmm the same way bread refers to a subsect of baked goods in English. Yeah. And it's not quite the same subsects. They just overlap enough that it's the best translation. Yeah. But brioche apparently does not fall in that subsect in French where it does in English. Okay. But and people like, have Pana to be Chocolat, about it because read it. Yeah, but Pan and Pan do fall in that subsect, whereas they definitely don't in English. Yeah. So it's like there are these things that overlap, but there are bits sticking out either edges, and brioche is on the wrong side of those bits. <laughs> Poor brioche. Poor brioche. I feel bad for brioche. I'm going to have to make some brioche to make it feel better. But brioche is a cake, not a bread, and it and it was and it was literally just a misunderstanding of how French translation works that led to a French person kicking off in a bread subreddit about a picture of brioche. Who fucking cares? Oh, mate, don't. I saw a stupid... I bet there's a lot of stuff to make one angry if one is a French bread enthusiast on Reddit. It's not quite as good as Italians angry at food or the guy I saw today (laughs) who posted a picture of some Detroit-style pizzas he'd made in our food and, like, one person... Most people in the comments were really nice and said they look great. Mm. And bear in mind in... What's a Detroit-style pizza? It involves baking a big flat base, almost like a focaccia, and uh-huh. the whole thing is covered in cheese and sauce, and especially the cheese goes down around the edges and oh. it gets crispy. Oh. I haven't tried. I haven't tried. They're very in at the moment. They're really fashionable. I haven't tried making one yet. Fashion pizza. Well, that sounds Maybe. very good. It does, but the edges on one were burnt because mm-hmm. his customer had asked for it, and it said "pros slash chef" because you have to say if you're a pro when you're posting yeah. an outfit. And almost everyone was really nice about it, and like one person was like, "Ah, oh, that's a little burnt for me," and the guy lost it. Yeah, the chef like lost it. And then he posted the same pizza in the pizza subreddit and the shitty food porn subreddit saying like, Uh our food said this was burnt. What do you guys think? Like, I don't feel welcome in our food now. And it's like, dude. But people in those reddits were like, oh yeah, no, people in our food are knobs. Sorry, mate. Pizza looks great. If your customer asks for a hard shop, brilliant. And like this guy was responding to every comment. being, And then eventually someone in shitty food porn was like, dude, I saw your post in our food no one was a dick to you why are you throwing your toys out that's it like if you go in to one of the more chill food subreddits saying something like that you can everyone is gonna go look for the post yeah you can imagine people having piled on to him if he'd caught it at the wrong time of day so you'd be sympathetic but if you then click through to look at the drama as you would like Mm -hmm. you got one person not quite 100 agreeing with you that counts as a win there was something massively wrong with this dude, but it was hilarious. So that was my... I uh, find that. Was that today? 
Uh, I'll, I'll link I'll link you to one of the posts. Cheers. Awesome. So yeah, so dwarven culture. <laughs> oh yeah, pizza, Detroit. Went <laughs> going backwards. Bread translations. <laughs> so I enjoy the difference between a translation and a literal translation. Uh huh. Because you get those massive differences, like the difference Brioche between sunshine and, and poor brioche gets left out. <laughs> but so, like the idea of a dwarf dwarf bar, mm-hmm. um, which is this combination of an idea of running away from tradition, yeah. because dwarves in the mines that traditionally wouldn't drink and would be quite sedate have come to these bars and they're given themselves stupid names and covered themselves. But it's running away from tradition and towards caricature. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the dwarven culture that gets expanded upon is kind of tied up in this the watch story arc anyway so we'll often it revisit is. dwarves at the same time we revisit the city watch and yeah it's quite cool and it's interesting because you get these parallels of you know what is cultural dwarfism mm-hmm. and then what is being genetically a dwarf yeah there's some you know probably some interesting round world parallels with jewishness and i need to learn more Definitely about anti-semitism yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so dragon physics is this about like it shouldn't be able to fly yeah yeah i liked this for a couple of reasons so this is on the same page actually as your favorite quote but it's when vime spends a little bit of time being annoyed about the impossibility of the bloody flying alligator setting fire to his city this for a couple of reasons and first of all it's kind of a nice illustration of vines's inherent state of knurd of like <laughs> he's, he's he's a few steps below sober because uh, Pratchett puts it in this bit part of him was marveling at the sheer beauty of the site but an insistent weasley little group of brain cells from the wrong side of the synapses was scrolling its graffiti on the walls of wonderment and like that's his brain cutting through the comfortable blurring of reality that Sybil is standing next to him demonstrating by going ooh yeah, Dragon. <laughs> pretty. But Vimes is like, well, this doesn't fucking yeah. work. But look, what? But anyway, second, I like the rabbit hole that sent me down because, unsurprisingly, I... quite a lot of essays on dragon physics. Nerds gonna nerd. I love nerds. Most of them are on how stupid it is and like how the Game of Thrones dragons can't fly and how it's all to um, do with like size and wingspan ratio. Yeah, yeah, basically. Same like... reason like humans couldn't fly because the we're too so, heavy. We'd need very big wings. Yeah. But I enjoyed one of the less skeptical ones by uh, Naturalish on Medium. I'll put a link. The author kind of had a play around with the idea of like the intense dragon heat changing the air density and like oh. looked at some of the pterosaurs that reached 11, me- 11 meter wingspan, which is, you know, not Game of Thrones throne size but pretty bloody That's pretty big. Fucking big yeah i mean if you consider a wandering albatross which is the biggest flying thing now is about three and a half meters yeah, yeah so if you imagine almost three albatrosses yeah albatry <laughs> albatrices <laughs> albatropods no there's no cheeses for us albatrices <laughs> oh god <laughs> I mean, obviously, the point is that Pratchett's dragon is like clearly a massive lump of lizard that couldn't fly. Like, there's no, like, that's the point. There's no, oh, maybe it's yeah. flying on the air thermals it's created and it's not a, it's not a spelt pterosaur. It is a big, bloody lump of lizard. Yeah. But it's still a fun thing to read about. That and there was fun. an infographic showing the size of different graph dragons and to scale versus actual flying things. Yeah. 
I enjoyed it. It's I've definitely seen infographics about like the Tolkien dragons before mm-hmm. and how much they don't work and how Smog is actually one of the smallest dragons in yeah. in that universe, which yeah. I just forgot the name of. Middle Earth. Middle Earth. Jesus. <laughs> how did I forget that? Oh, although this was a cool thing. You asked me this earlier. I want to extend this question out to our listeners. If you could live in any fantasy world, listeners, what fantasy world would you live in? And you can't say this is an okay answer, but you then have to specify another one because otherwise that's very boring. Yeah, because otherwise I assume you're all going to just respond with Discworld. (laughs) We know you want to live in Discworld, but apart from Discworld, and I thought this because the only one I could think of where I wouldn't definitely end up a downtrodden peasant would be living in the Shire, (laughs) post-scouring, when Frodo's defunded the police. That's it. It's like if you get to pick your station in life, then choice expands a bit, but... Yeah, then, I wouldn't then mind maybe. being a witted noble in Robin Hobb's books after the witted people stop getting genocided. Like I said, I, I think I'd want to live in Traders Bay, but I'd ha- I'd keep a lover in Buckkeep. <laughs> I'd visit possibly once a year. <laughs> a witted lover. How much time have you spent on boats? I've spent enough time to know I don't get seasick. Okay, you're fine then. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, <laughs> I quite like sailing. <laughs> Anyway, sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. Obscure reference, Finial Francis. Mm. Oh, it's me again. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Obscure reference, Finial is what page did I say it was on? Page 99. 99. Um, talking about the dragons, talking about dragons. Errol specifically, or good boy. Something yes, he's not been there. named yet. Yes. What's his uh, breeding name? Good John? boy, Bindle Featherstone of Quirm. Yes. Uh, and Sybil, well describing him, says, one just has to put up with the occasional total whittle. Which is rather a clever joke, Joanna. Is it? Actually, Marvelous. yeah. Actually. Um, <laughs> because clever joke in a Discworld book. <laughs> you don't what will they say. think of next? Um, the inventor of the turbojet engine was a Mr. Frank Whittle. Um, ah. And Errol's flying is powered by a jet mechanism that he burns the fuel and puts the energy out one end and you know this is really good engineer speak here thanks (laughs) could have written down some of these words couldn't you pass me twat um all i've got got is whittle jet um (laughs) (laughs) they're so professional yeah so that's my obscure reference so i think that's everything so we'll be back next week to talk about uh guards guards part two guards We'll be going from... Do we actually get to yell it in the book? Is the name of the thing in the thing in second? Or are we waiting for the third? I think it's in the third. Yeah. So we're going from, in the Corgi paperback, page 107, to page 207, exactly 100 pages. Yeah, there are asterisks the between the beginning and end of these sentences. Sentences? Sections. 200, you say. There you go. 107 to 207. So oh, 100... Yeah, so part two starts with the elucidated elucidated brethren were nervous a kind of fear crackled from brother to brother and ends with someone had eaten into that too all that was left was a few shards of glass Ooh, and, and then a few ask- uh, we'll find out. we'll find out next week in the meantime you can follow us on instagram at the true shall make you fret you can follow us on twitter at make you fret pod join in the civil fan club join the civil fan club 
join us in voting on the Pratchett World Cup. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Tree Show Make You Fret. You can email us your thoughts, queries, castles, and snacks and albatrosses. The Tree Show Make You Fret pod at gmail.com. Actually, no albatrosses because I already got one and this necklace is like super heavy. <laughs> Please let us know what fantasy world you'd like to live in. In the meantime, dear listener, don't let us detain you. Every time I listen back to our podcast, I want to shout nerds at us so badly. (laughs)